0: Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the podcast where I will be discussing what role TikTok might play in this year's upcoming elections on the African continent. But before I get into the show, I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who has reached out to me so far about this podcast. I have had some great and unexpected feedback from people all over the world who are listening and engaging with the content and finding it thought-provoking and stimulating. So I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in and listening and trusting the process. Um, Trusting a process is a really big part of podcasting as I'm learning. Um, As someone who Instinctively writes things down first before speaking about them, especially speaking about them publicly. This is a whole different orientation to knowledge production for me um, in terms of putting things into voice first and then sometimes working backwards with that. I haven't really started working backwards with any of my recordings, but it's always so interesting because. I feel like some of the episodes, especially last week's episode was, that was a really hard episode to record, I must admit, because there was so much information and I wasn't sure I could put it all together in a coherent 30 minute uh, chat or podcast that would make sense. So it's so great when you get the feedback that it landed and it made sense. Um, It makes all the time sort of researching it and structuring your thoughts um, worth it because it translates. So like I said, today we're discussing what role TikTok could play in upcoming African elections this year. And not just this year, I feel like beyond uh, 2023 because we're still at the nascence of TikTok in certain ways. It only became a really popular platform around 2020 with the pandemic. So three years from that, we're still kind of figuring out what role TikTok will play um, among these other social media giants and companies that are going through their own shifts and changes. But for me to think about TikTok, um, I think it's a really important platform. It gets taken not so seriously, I think, because while it's demographic, is younger people, And it is largely entertainment oriented. So I think people tend to think of it a little bit less seriously than they would about, say, Twitter. But I find this whole shift in generational social media use also very interesting because for the longest time or since the emergence of social media platforms, millennials were the youngest people in the world and they were the youngest users of social media so they were the um, early adopters of spaces like uh, Facebook and um, Twitter and all those social media platforms that emerged at that time. And so they were frontrunners. We were frontrunners. I'm a millennial too. But now you have this distinct shift where uh, millennials are sort of giving up social media or they're converging in spaces that are not as current or engaging or as exciting as they were. I think Twitter has stood the test of time, but you know, as I've discussed in a previous episode, there's also shifting dynamics with Twitter use. And so you have this platform, TikTok, that is completely catering to a new generation of people and is being used quite differently. So I find that it's a really interesting platform to keep looking at and seeing how it will be used by young people and what role it will play in in, in looking at social fabric, politics politics and social organizing and other areas of life. So, I mean, TikTok is the fastest growing platform among youth and young people are the most populous group of people on the African continent. I think um, if I can read from a quote from an article by the Africa Report from earlier in this month... They say, with the median age of 18 and 60% of the population under 25 years, Africa is a continent of digital natives with galloping rates of smartphone adoption. Now, this is not something, end quote, this is not something that we don't already know. It's been talked about for a long time about how Africa has the youngest population on the, on, in the world, And also how mobile penetration on the continent is a big thing. How mobile phones, firstly, just the basic mobile phones and then going into smartphones have become one of the biggest markets globally. And so obviously with that comes greater uptake of social media platforms and applications. And also then, you know, we can then say, oh, well, but what does that look like when we look at platforms, newer platforms um, like TikTok? So um, another thing that's really interesting about TikTok is how it is changing the dynamics of digital use in general. Um, in data from a 2022 survey of American TikTok users who were aged between 18 and 24, it was found that approximately 40% use TikTok or Instagram over Google when searching content. So this suggests that Gen Z may increasingly use these platforms as replacements for more traditional search engines, which just seems unfathomable if we talk about this just five years ago. If you had a conversation about how people would stop using Google as a main search engine, I doubt many people could see what shape or form that could necessarily take because Google is such a universal idea of how we search and gather knowledge on the internet. The, the very idea, the very fact that we call that whole process, that whole action, Googling, just tells you everything you need to know. The fact that, um, it's kind of like when Coca-Cola becomes what we refer to as any cola or soft aid, a soft drink, sorry, soft aid, (laughs) soft drink. Um, And how the dominance of one brand or one idea of a way of doing something um, is just so prevalent. And then now you have a new generation of people who are not using this platform in the same way, who will probably have a whole different idea of Googling, may not even use that language because they don't Google, they don't use Google. So it's a very interesting time in that in that way that young people are remixing these ideas of how to find knowledge and how they verify facts and information. So, which countries are we looking at for elections upcoming on the continent? Well, so there are countries that I read up on that seemed to have elections coming up uh, in 2023, but because of shifting politics and dynamics have had those elections moved into 2024. I think South Sudan has had pending elections for some time. It looked like they might happen in 2023, but I believe they've been shifted into 2024. That would have been a very interesting country to look at. Um, But then I came up with three countries that had interesting dynamics because there are elections happening in different countries. Some are presidential, some are parliamentary, some are local. But I think it's always very interesting to look at countries that are having presidential elections. And that's not to disregard the importance of local elections, but um, to highlight how volatile um, the process of of selecting leaders to lead countries can be. And also, I think in general, people who are election watchers tend to have uh, more of an interest in presidential elections because of the significance of those kinds of elections. So I came up with three countries that were of high interest, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, and Libya. Very different countries in different regions of the continent Nigeria in West Africa, Zimbabwe in Southern Africa, and Libya in North North Africa. So already very different politics, very very different regional regional dynamics, but I think all three countries in their very different ways uh, garner a lot of interest within the continent and internationally for their elections because each country has a very complex uh, political history and political present moment, uh, and, and all kinds of dynamics of geopolitics at play that make them very important countries to watch from an international perspective. But for my analysis, I've chosen to focus on Nigeria and Zimbabwe in particular. I am not an expert on the politics of Nigeria or Zimbabwe, so it's not exactly like I am um, putting myself out there in that way. But I think that um, Libya and the politics of North Africa and as a regional bloc, uh, the Middle East and North Africa, what is abbreviated to MENA, is uh, a geopolitical space that I, I have some knowledge of and I follow somewhat, But I I think that the politics of that region tends to be somewhat different from the politics of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, There is a lot of overlap and there is a lot of uh, different uh, movements that have connected across these regions. But I think that um, Libya and other North African countries sometimes are more interesting to analyze within the context of that um, regional block of Mena uh, because of the similarities and the overlaps. But also I like I say, I'm not an expert on any of these countries, but I would have to say that on all of all of them, I know the least about Libya. And so I'll park that one for now and just focus on Nigeria and Zimbabwe. Now those are also very vastly different countries, uh, have some similarities and but a lot of differences as well. I think one of the most, the starkest differences between Nigeria and Zimbabwe has to be population size. Zimbabwe, somehow, for 16 million, a population of 16 million. And as a Zimbabwean, I know this, uh, that when people find out that Zimbabwe has a population of 16 million, it's always very surprising because Zimbabwe feels or sounds like it's a bigger country. Um, I think um, the cultural output of Zimbabwe historically uh, the, the movement of Zimbabweans uh, into the global sphere has always been quite impactful. There are quite a few Zimbabweans of high repute globally. And so I think there's always this idea that Zimbabwe is a bigger country than it is, but it is a country of 16 million people. And when we look at Nigeria, that's that's just a massive country, 213 million people. And so we're looking at Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe's population at least, fitting into Nigeria's population 13 times with a bit of spare change. So Nigeria is 13 times and some larger by population than Zimbabwe. And so that's already a very massive difference between countries. It it also speaks to a massive difference in youth population sizes, mobile uptake, digital uptake social media uptake all of that and i will look at the history a little bit of each of these countries very briefly in terms of what the 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 terrain in terms of social media for activism has looked like and i think one moment that uh, a lot of researchers and social commentators and analysts uh, from the nigerian perspective point to as a as a threshold moment in shifting of the dynamics of political activism among young people in Nigeria within the digital realm. One of those pivotal moments is 2012 with the Nigerian fuel subsidy protests. Um, I've read up a little bit about this and about how um, Nigerian young people were very central to these uprisings that took place across the country um, in response to these alarming exponential rises in the costs of fuel that led obviously to a, an exponential rise in the cost of basic commodities and how young people were able to organize themselves across different platforms. Particularly, I see a lot of uh, mention of BlackBerry Messenger and Twitter as these very pivotal platforms that fueled Uh, And that's that pun is not intended, (laughs) that fueled the spread of this um, protest and spirit of protest and uprising um, and information sharing, you know, and led to this, you know, groundswell of people coming together to protest um, very important state related issues. So, that's a very important example or moment that has then led to other moments that have come uh, as a result or since. And I think one of the most important ones in recent history would be SARS, which I've discussed in previous episodes of this podcast, which was a 2020 uh, movement or protest movement against uh, police brutality in, in Nigeria. And that had massive reach across social media. But also had um, very serious impacts on physical bodies and physical lives within the Nigerian space. And so, you know, to just chart that history a little bit and go backwards and see how uh, social media organizing has moved since 2012 in Nigeria and, you know, almost 10 years later with SARS, it's just, you know, it's almost been this exponential rise and, and the use of those spaces and platforms and different spaces and platforms. I think, you know, most We've moved away from BlackBerry Messenger, but Twitter has remained very important. And how that's you know the the forerunner to to where we are, and so you know where we are going with with TikTok is very interesting. And I think just looking at even the hashtag and SARS on TikTok, as of my recording this, it returned about a hundred and ninety four million views. I can't get the number of videos and that sort of thing with terms of content that was uploaded. But the fact that 194, that it's been viewed 194 million times on TikTok shows that there was a massive interest in what was going on. And, you know, people were posting content that people um, viewed and consumed and may continue to view and consume. Zimbabwe is a very different place, I think, in terms of social media activism and digital use. And um, I think one moment that one can look at and say, oh, this is a this is a groundbreaking moment in um, activism and organizing for social change, social and political change using social media, has to be the 2016 This Flag movement. And this was a movement that was initiated by a citizen who recorded himself uh, on a Facebook post uh, talking about the issues he was experiencing with uh, raising costs, raising funds for costs of taking care of his family. And he went through uh, the colors of the flag of Zimbabwe, which all represent something, and um, was igniting a sense of nostalgia and patriotism among a lot of people in terms of, you know, this idea, this ideal of what the Zimbabwean flag represents and how it should be positioned to uh, make sense of what it means to be Zimbabwean and how how Zimbabweans' lives should look. And that became a viral video and led to a lot of people also adopting the flag to express their own views about what sovereignty and nationhood meant to them. Uh, The most important platform, one of the most important platforms for this flag also became Twitter, which that was probably one of the first real uses of Twitter as a politically oriented space or a space for organizing in a political way among Zimbabweans. I feel like before then, Twitter was used for conversations or dialogue. Um, At least hashtags were used that way more than to have an overt sort of political agenda. One of the precursors to this flag would be uh, hashtag 263chat, which ran for some years quite robustly. I mean, 263chat still exists as a media organization today, but in its infancy, 263chat... Was a chat that happened every Tuesday evening, if I'm not mistaken. Tuesday, was it Tuesday? Tuesday, I think they tried a few other days, but if I'm remembering it well, it was Tuesday evenings. And we had the moderator, the founder of 263 Chats, Sir Nigel Mugamu. And he just, we, we had a conversation uh, topic every week, and everyone would tune in on Tuesdays and have a conversation and further the conversation through this hashtag. And sometimes he'd have a guest and, you know, it was this conversation between himself and his guest, but then other people would also come in and add their comments via this hashtag. So it's a very different way of organizing. It's very organized, uh, very structured, and very... um. You know, you had a time slot, seven p.m. to nine p.m., and then afterwards, you know, you kind of went about your way. Two six three chat as a hashtag was used to ha- to index a lot of other content, but then this very organized way of using a hashtag uh, was the way that most people knew Twitter to to work, and not in a very politically oriented way. In that, in that sort of overt geopolitics, national politics sort of way. So this broke with the mold and started a whole new way um, of of using hashtags in a more politically oriented way. So um, since then as well, Zimbabwe has had a moment or few moments with hashtags that had a political agenda. I think one of the most recent times And one of the more robust times was again also in 2020, as with Nigeria, with the hashtag Zimbabwean Lives Matter, which went viral for a few days, um, as Zimbabweans also shared frustrations around um, management of COVID funds and um, just general disregard for issues that continue to manifest within the nation. And so you have somewhat a different, um, I wouldn't say an audience, but I think a a very different kind of complexion to the way social media has grown. I wouldn't say that, um, obviously, with a population that is much smaller, Zimbabwe doesn't have as many people on social media, but then I think that the way that the 2020-2012 fuel subsidy led to this moment or was seen in this way as just opening up a space for Nigerians to be more politically overt on social media. I wouldn't necessarily say that was exactly the same moment with this flag. I think that, um, and that, that speaks to the different ways that expression looks and has looked in these different nations. I think Nigerians are just generally known to be um, more visible, more vocal, and Zimbabweans culturally, not so much, and so I think the whole idea of being very publicly vocal about politics is still something that is not not as common and not as um appealing, where you will still still hear a lot of people say that they they believe that. If you want to, to do anything that's politically oriented, that really reaches people, it's largely going to be on WhatsApp because the platform is also, one, more generally accessible and um, it's also just has a little bit more privacy, even though we can contest what privacy looks like in a digital age. Um, so I just want to look a little bit more at uh, TikTok now. And, you know, with this little bit of background, we already see that these countries have very different ways of looking at political organizing online. They are very different populations, very different population sizes. And um, when we look at Nigeria, if you just go on the hashtag, because most African countries have this hashtag that indexes their TikTok content by country. So you would have... Nigeria TikTok, Zimbabwe TikTok, Kenya TikTok, South Africa TikTok, Uganda TikTok, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you go and look on those hashtags, you can see how many views each hash each hashtag has had on TikTok. So for Nigeria TikTok, it sits on one point six billion views, which is a really big number. Zimbabwe TikTok, we're looking at eleven point eight million views. Um as a comparison, that is significantly different. It, it speaks to um, the uses of each population of TikTok, which seems to be very different. But also, um, I'm sure many people would have indexed the NSARS protests with Nigeria TikTok as well. And so that contributes to the size of that of, of the number of views of that hashtag, because if you index content with more than one hashtag, obviously, it's likely that when NSARS was viral, many people would have also indexed it with Nigeria TikTok. So these are very different spaces. Um, even if one looks at Zimbabwean Lives Matter as a hashtag on TikTok, it has 2 million views, which is significantly smaller than the 194 million views of NSARS. And so I then am very interested with these very big differences um, to look at another country as a comparison. We had Kenya last year. They had their elections, and that's an interesting test case for all the social media and TikTok. So Kenya, as with many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, has these elections that elicit a lot of interest from people across the continent but also internationally. And I think Kenya is very similar in, in, in ways to Zimbabwe that um, in 2008 in Zimbabwe and in 2007 in Kenya, there were these elections that led to a lot of political violence that have marked the elections that have come since then, have have been compared a lot to that moment because that moment was a moment of deep chaos and um, political unrest. So many people would have watched Kenya's elections last year with a lot of interest because, again, social media continues to be a, an important factor. And now we have TikTok as a new player. There wasn't too much focus on TikTok, as much as I could find, um, There's, you know, conversations about what role TikTok could play, might play in those elections. Again, speaking to this misinformation that could happen because of um, the uses that younger people make of social media, of TikTok in in particular as a social media platform. But again, most of the focus was on how Facebook and Twitter might play a role in, in election misinformation, incitation, incitement. Sorry, there is no such word as incitation, I believe. Incitement. Um, and um, it was very interesting to see the work that uh, Global Witness did on this. Um, and they were looking at online hate speech. And they, d- they ran this really interesting campaign where they submitted adverts to Facebook in Swahili and English which had very explicit uh, political incitement and um, talked to uh, tribalism and all the kinds of things that tend to uh, bring about this eruption of violence in in, in the build-up to elections. And they ran these adverts, and these adverts were actually posted by Facebook, and did not get any kind of censorship at all, which then you know, raised a lot of red flags around, well, you know, is anyone actually looking at this content seriously? And what role does content moderation actually play in preventing content that is malicious and potentially harmful to populations? What is, you know What is the gatekeeping function? And who is the gatekeeper? of political violence, politi- politically violent information and information that may lead to incitement. But, you know, going back to TikTok itself, they launched a uh, three-part series, I think, um, in, in Kenya in the build-up to those elections, which was called TikTok for Peace, which was in, in partnership with Article 19, another social justice organization And I think that was a series of TikTok live sessions which were hosted at a university in uh, Kenya uh, featuring um, government officials and people from civil society and academia to try to focus on tolerance and building bridges and active citizenship. And so there were live streams that took place and um, these sessions were trying to bring about an idea of how TikTok should be used for peaceful um, organising. And um, so that's a way that TikTok was already preempting its role potentially in in these elections. But I think one of the more interesting things that came out of those elections, as I've said, was this um, this uh, realization that one could still run a lot of content that passed through content moderation and was inciting people to violence. And um, there's, there's therefore been a lot of conversations about the role that content moderation plays. Um, last year, there was also a conversation about TikTok's African content moderators and um, having to view psychologically taxing content um, and being paid very meagerly at $3 an hour. I think there's been a, a new article as well that's come out or new information that's come out from a Times investigation, where they found that Chat GPT, the latest um, innovation in artificial intelligence, that's you know taking over, taking everyone by storm. That um, there's been content moderation issues as well, where they're using a lot of content moderators from the African continent and paying them two dollars an hour um, to moderate content. On the platform. So, you know, Africa obviously offers a lot of cheap labor. And um, so, content moderators aren't paid very well. But then also, they're just given so much data. There is just so much data that one has to look at um, and and make judgment calls on, such that um, you get these instances of the example of Global Witness, where you run these adverts. And campaigns that are politically incite, political incitement to violence, and that they can still flight, um, on these platforms. So that is one thing that is important to watch out for, because um, this could happen as well with a platform like TikTok. And the question is, you know, how do how does TikTok intend to deal with that? So far, it doesn't seem like TikTok has started to play an important enough role that these kinds of things are happening during election times on the continent. But because we are seeing them happening with social media platforms that are taken up by more people like Facebook, they're likely to start to happen as well on platforms like TikTok as TikTok continues to grow. So these are all important things to be thinking about and um, having conversations around, especially around this content moderation where One would want to hope that if you have more African language content moderators, then local language, uh, politically violent messages and content will not go through uh, the gatekeeping function that content moderation plays. But this is not proving to be the point um, or not proving to be the case um, where we see content both in English and in a very big Language like Swahili. I mean, Swahili of African languages is probably one of the more popular and one of the more um, resourced in terms of content moderation, one would like to think, but content even in Swahili still goes through um, the content moderation gate. But I think more alarmingly, content in English goes through the gate because we're speaking about Anglophone Africa. So Nigeria and Zimbabwe are Anglophone Africa. So what does that look like or mean in the greater context of um, moderating this content on these platforms? Misinformation is a big big thing. It's a big topic. At this point, there's even a term information disorder that's being used more and more around how we're living and as societies in bubbles, filter bubbles, echo chambers, spaces where we are highly misinformed and disinformed, disengaged from reality to the point that this this kind of information that we have can make us into we can be incited to actions that are based on misinformation. So this is you know a very scary time to be looking at. And um, when we look at these uh, these dynamics of young people and young people live in filter bubbles. We all live in filter bubbles, but it's it's you know, as a young person, your peers are likely to be your greatest influence about information and content. And so if one enters a filter bubble and has information that is insightful, um, and incitement to some kind of action, and young people are using a platform like TikTok as their search engine, uh, it follows that there's a lot to think about and a lot to start to, um, really try to prepare for and, um, to mitigate against, because again, content moderation, as we've just discussed, is not a test of, at this point, it's not a real test of whether information will go through the gate or not. There are many loopholes. There are still many, um, things to be sorted out with getting content moderation right. And so these are these conversation points that are really important to start to think about. Um, and, and the last one that I would like to offer is the politics of dance, and. Um, ByteDance breaks the trend of most social media platforms that we are currently popularly using in that it's not a Western platform. Uh, ByteDance, the company that owns TikTok, is Chinese headquartered, and that speaks as well to the, the regional blocks of power and knowledge production, the West and the East and so there's all kinds of dynamics to also think about there because uh, the whole outlook of China within African politics is very different to the West. And um, so that's also really interesting when one thinks about, well, what, are, what is the impetus or the incentive or the um, outlook that these different companies have? to moderate content or to put resources towards moderating content in a certain way when they have very different relationships to the geopolitics of Africa. So I think all those things are really important to look at. It's not just, you know, young people on TikTok doing what they're doing. There are so many other factors at play that make the whole experience um, very complex and the dynamics also very complex, the, the cultures are different, um the platforms are different. TikTok is so much different in so many ways to older social media platforms. I think we could all agree that Twitter used to be the the public town hall um, in certain ways. But that's shifting. You know, ownership of Twitter has changed hands. And um, then you have TikTok that's just emerging in a very different way and it's you know more audiovisually oriented and um and then it has all these other dynamics of where it's headquartered and how it operates and how it's perceived in the western world i mean there has been a, a lot of motions happening to ban tiktok for instance on government devices in in states in the united states of america um i think that tiktok is banned in india as well again based on the politics between those two nations, China and India. So it's very interesting when one also brings in the factor of China's um, involvement on the African continent and what their policies would be around information gatekeeping if it came to that. Um, But then, you know, I'll end this with questions. You know, is TikTok really that big? As I say, it's not yet there. But it's still worth having a conversation about it because I believe it's going to keep growing and these things will come into play at some point. And is African uh, Gen Z using it the same way that American Gen Z is using it? Is African Gen Z googling via TikTok the way American Gen Z is? Well, I don't have any research to go on, but I'd like to assume that many young people would be doing the same thing. But, you know, it might be different. Who knows? It's always important to not make these generalizations across um, spaces because different people use these different platforms very differently. Um, also, class still plays a big role in the use of social media, as we've alluded to earlier. It's TikTok probably is at this point, quite an elite platform. You need a lot of access to data um, to be able to make a viable use of Twitter, of TikTok uh, to consume content, but also to create it because the content is audiovisual. And so that's a big bar- barrier to participation from a lot of people because anything that's text-based is always easier to have access to. It's much more affordable. So in a way, these might still be very theoretical conversations and ideas, but they're still worth having. And so I'll leave it at that. And I hope that this has been engaging to you in some way. Let me know your thoughts. Any feedback is welcome. And yeah, thank you for listening and all the best. We'll have another conversation very soon. Take care of yourself.